Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 16 this evening. Uh, we're uh, coming to the end of the special section, the discourse that uh, uh, that John's gospel tells us about, that uh, the things that Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper after Judas had left the room to go to betray Jesus. We'll remind you that John is the last of the gospel writers. He writes this somewhere in the 92 to 95, maybe, um, A.D. Uh, time period, which means that uh, Jesus has been uh, uh, crucified and risen from the dead some 60 years, approximately 60 years since uh, the time that uh, John writes this. Um, the significance, there, there are several things about this that I find uh, interesting. One is that um, uh, over this time, one of the, the works that, uh, that John is going to tell us about the Holy Spirit, and chapter 16 is all about the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, one of the things he's going to tell us is he'll bring things to your remembrance. Uh, what Jesus has already said that, excuse me, he's already said that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. John's got 60 years to remember. Now, we would think, uh, or at least we might be tempted to think, on one hand, 60 years, man, he's going to be forgetting things that, uh, that Jesus said. But it's going to be just the opposite. There are going to be things that the Holy Ghost brings to his remembrance that he didn't remember 20 years before or 10 years before. These are things that as he grows in Christ and, and uh, uh, develops spiritually, that the Holy Ghost is going to bring back to his remembrance things that he might not have even caught the first time around because it didn't have any meaning to him. Because it's, um, uh, at this point in time when uh, Jesus is speaking, John 16, John's unsaved. So there's, uh, there's some, um, uh, for that reason, I believe, the Gospel of John is of utmost importance to us because it's the Holy Ghost taking a last look back from an eyewitness account. So uh, you know as well as I do, this starts in uh, chapter 13, uh, with the last part of chapter 13 and then into chapter 14. How do you make chapter designations in this? It's all one uh, discourse. It's all one uh, speech that Jesus is making. It's all one conversation. As a result, we're going to have to back up in chapter chapter 15 and see what the, the context of chapter 16 is going to be. So let's back up to verse 24 of John chapter 15. Jesus said, uh, if I had not done among them the works which no other man did, they would have not had, they had not sinned, had not had sinned. In other words, they wouldn't have been guilty of, uh, of, of sin. They wouldn't have known. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. So the hatred of God and hatred of Jesus is the context that he says these next several things. But this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the comforter is come. So notice he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming in context of being hated and rejected of, of the world. When the comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the father, even the spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. And you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now here's the bad news. Chapter 16, verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. Okay, we know the reason why he's saying these things, these things that have been said previously and the things he's going to add to them. And then he says in verse 2, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever killeth you will think that he does God a service. Now, let me ask you a question. When, why does he put verse 1 in there, these things have I spoken unto you that you would not be offended? It sounds like Jesus is warning them, doesn't it? But think a little bit further. In a, a matter of a few hours, every one of them is going to be offended and leave Jesus. 
in just a couple of hours from this point in time, probably. We don't know exactly the, the clock. But in about two to maybe three hours from the time that Jesus is saying these very words, every one of them is going to be offended. And they're going to be offended so that the prophecy is fulfilled from the Old Testament that when the sheep is, uh, uh, when the shepherd is smitten, the sheep will scatter. It calls that offenses. It says the sheep shall be offended and scatter. So why in the world does Jesus say, I'm saying these things to you that you not be offended, knowing full well they're going to be offended in just a few hours? Furthermore, at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is going to take place in just a little bit between this point in time in John chapter 16 and his betrayal, you remember that he takes Peter, James, and John with him to pray, and he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Why does he tell that when he knows Peter is going to deny him three times before the morning already? Post the point is very simply this. The Bible tells us that, uh, that, people will, that, that the Holy Spirit is sent into the world the gospel is being preached. The, the disciples, the apostles, you and me, are being sent into the world to preach the gospel so that people can have the opportunity to hear, knowing full well that not everybody that hears is going to receive. Why does God do this? Why does God tell us, tell them, these things I'm writing to you not to be offended, knowing full well they're going to be? God, that's a pattern that, that, that follows over and over and over again. God tells you not to do things or God speaks to you about the power, the, the principle of not doing certain things, knowing full well you're not going to make it. Why? Because here is the principle. The principle is even though you may fail, even though you and I may miss the mark, we still have responsibility and Jesus is faithful to show us what our responsibility is. So he says, I'm telling you these things so you not be offended. And they're going to be. But then he forewarns them. He says, there's coming a day when they're not only going to put you out of the synagogue. Now, what does that mean? That means everything that you have enjoyed as a, as a privilege and a blessing as a Jew, forget it. Because you're going to be disassociated with everything you have ever known. All your friends and your associates, that's the first warning he makes. The people that you have been closest to are going to turn you out and even some will try to kill you. By the way, the Apostle Paul or Saul before he became Paul was one of those. And they'll think they're doing God a service. Verse 3. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Folks, I want you to understand Jesus is telling you first and foremost, here's what persecution is all about. Persecution is not only the consequence, but the cause of not knowing God. And when Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's what it's all about. They don't know the source. Those that persecute don't know the source of the enemy that they make, which is God. And that's what persecution is there. Persecution is not about you. It's never going to be about you. It's about Jesus. And look at how the world, um, look at the attitude the world takes toward Christianity. Even those that preach tolerance of every belief in the world, uh, every other belief in the world. Christianity is the thing. You can carry a Koran anywhere and nobody will t give you a second look. Take a Bible into a restaurant and see what happens. It grabs everybody's attention. Why? Because this world hates Jesus. But these things, verse 4, these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you, rem you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, here's an important point. 
He's saying, I'm saying these things so that you'll remember that I told you. Why is that important? When they're putting him out of the synagogues, which happens a very short period of time later, when people are trying to kill him, which happens a very short period of time later, why does he want them to remember that he said this? Won't they have their hands full then with the situation at hand? Here's the important thing, folks. If Jesus was accurate and correct in telling them about the persecution, that means everything he told them about the blessings and the promises are true, too. Now, here's the final prom- or the final warning. He says, I didn't tell you this stuff from the beginning. You know, I can just see Peter speaking up and saying, you know, it would have been nice to know this when you said, come follow me. But notice why Jesus said he didn't tell them that. He said, I didn't tell you this from the, the beginning because I was there. All the time they tried to kill me, I showed you how it operates. All the time that they were after you because you were followers of me, I protected you from them. Well, if he protected them from them then, and he's already told them in chapter 15 that his work will continue on even though they won't be able to see him, then they should surmise that he'll protect them still. Now, folks, I want you to stop and think about a couple of things that John doesn't tell us. For example, how about in chapter 14 when Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why don't these guys stop and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. You mean you're preparing a place for us in heaven? You're preparing some kind of heavenly place? Now, I'm not talking about mansions. I'm not talking about building houses. I'm talking about relationships. You mean you're building some kind of place? There's something involved with this plan of you dying and going to the cross and all the stuff you've been telling us about. There's something about that that's going to benefit us in the same spiritual context that you walk in now. Why didn't John tell us about that? Because these guys didn't get that. What about in chapter 15 where he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Why don't these guys stop and say, whoa, stop, slow down here. You mean to tell me that we can get our prayers answered like you get your prayers answered? Why didn't John tell us that? Because these guys weren't smart enough to get that. There's one and only one thing dominating their minds, and that is Jesus is leaving us. That's why he starts off in chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. The only thing they're troubled about is, oh, my goodness, Jesus is going away. That's the only thing they care about. Poor us. They're not thinking about any spiritual blessing. They're not thinking about any spiritual consequence. They're not thinking about what they can gain through any of this or even why he's doing it. The only thing they care about is he's leaving us. And that dominates everything about this discourse that Jesus is trying to explain to them. You tell me, how many times have we gone through and seen where Jesus says, I'm leaving and going to the Father? A bunch of them, right? Several at least. They still don't get it. They still don't get it. So he says, I didn't tell you these things in the beginning because I was with you. I was there to protect you. I was there to deflect this stuff. Now you're going to be able to handle it on your own through spiritual means. But now I go my way to him that sent me. says it again. I'm going my way to him that sent me. And none of you ask me, whether goest thou? Now, if you'll back up with me a little bit to chapter 13, verse 36. Maybe I better back up to verse 33 and I'll skip down to verse 36. Jesus said, little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you. Verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? Whither goest thou? 
And Jesus answered him and says, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 4, And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said unto him, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, how in the world can Jesus say, And now in chapter 16, verse 5, None of you says, Where are you going? Folks, here's what he means. He means none of you are seeking after the meaning of what I've told you about where I am going. He's told them time and time again that he's going to the Father. That means nothing to the Jews. Now, let me explain something to you about Jewish theology. Heaven's not part of it. One of the stumbling blocks, one of the problems that the Jews have in believing about Jesus is that his kingdom is not here on the earth. Do you remember how many times, over and over again, there were times and situations where people would come to him and say, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? You know why that's such a big deal to the Jews? Is because that's all they think they are promised. The only thing that the Jews think they are promised is a kingdom here on the earth. The Messiah coming to make them top dog over every country, every nation, every people, every ethnic group, and so forth. That's why in their minds, everybody else is dogs. Now, should that be their theology? Nope. They've got verses of Scripture throughout the Old Testament that they've overlooked. For example, Psalm 68, verse 18 where it talks about the Lord shall lead captivity captive. Well, what's it talking about? Nobody ever stopped to bother to figure out what does that mean? Jesus taking those that are captive in Abraham's bosom to heaven with him and giving gifts unto men. Psalm 110, verse 1, where David said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit here on my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. They put a natural connotation on that. They put a natural meaning on that. They said, well, okay, that means the Messiah is going to be the king of the earth. There is no heaven in Jewish theology. So when Jesus is talking about leaving, that's why the Jews spoke up and said, what do you mean you're going somewhere we can't go? You can't be the Messiah if you're leaving because the Messiah stays here. See the problem they've got? That's why when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, the Jews are hearing that. Those that have been trained in Judaism hear that and say, well, you can't be the Messiah then because the Messiah's kingdom's here. Back to chapter 16. But now, verse 5 again, but now I go to him that sent me and none of you ask me whether goest thou. In other words, none of you have stopped to figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, that's the point that I was trying to make before about chapter 14. Why aren't they asking, you know, Jesus, what's going on? Chapter 15, what about our prayer? What, what about the Holy Spirit when you send him to do these things? What, what does this mean? Nobody's seeking out the meaning because there's only one thing dominating their mind, and that is we're going to be left alone. Verse 6, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now, here's why he says you need to know that this is the truth. And we'll come back to verse 7 because there's something that, that, doesn't, that the English doesn't bring out here that the Greek does that we want to point out in just a moment. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, I know this goes against everything you've been taught in, in the synagogues. But this is the truth. It is expedient or profitable for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, what's he telling them? He's saying it's better for you to have the comforter than to have me. Does that make a dent in them? No. Their only concern is, poor old us, we're going to be losing you. 
This shakes everything about them because if if he's leaving and the Messiah is supposed to be here on the earth, now Jesus never said that. But if they accept the teaching of the synagogues that Jesus is uh, that that the Messiah is supposed to have an earthly kingdom, then how can Jesus be the Messiah? What have we believed in all this time? You can see why they would be so troubled and so confused. Verse eight. And when he, the Comforter, has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, folks, this word reprove, as a matter of fact, it's got a little number one in my Bible. And it takes me over to the margin. It says convince or convict. Now, this word is translated a couple of different things throughout the New Testament. One place it's translated rebuke. Another place it's translated convict. We get the idea from this that this is conviction, spiritual conviction. That the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convince people or convict them in their hearts that Jesus is the Messiah and they're going to get saved or need to get saved. But let me ask you a question. If he's going to convince them of sin, then it says he'll convince them of righteousness. Wouldn't he be convincing or convicting them of unrighteousness? If this is conviction in the hearts of the people, wouldn't he be convicting them of unrighteousness? And if he's convicting them of unrighteousness, then why then is he convicting them of judgment? The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Any of you ever, did any of you ever have the Holy Ghost come upon you in some sort of way and say, get saved or else? Now, there are a couple of extreme examples like that. That's basically what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him and says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. This is your one and only chance. That's my interpretation, but that's basically what's happening. But that's a pretty unusual experience. I didn't get saved that way, did you? I didn't see a light, didn't fall off an animal, donkey or otherwise. That's not the way it normally happens. So what is this talking about? You've got to get rid of this spiritual conviction idea out of your mind. Because Jesus is talking about the hatred that the world has for him, the persecution that he brings against the church, and he's saying the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, in this case it's the uh, the word is the Greek word is paraclete, it has a lot of different meanings. Most translations translate this as advocate. The most accurate translation for the word paraclete in this case, in this verse, is advocate. Because convict is a legal term. It's not a spiritual term. It's not something that's going on in the conscience of men. Convict is a legal term. What does an advocate or a lawyer, in this case it would be a prosecutor, what does a prosecutor do in the courtroom? Does he try to make the guilty party feel bad about what he's done? Or does he lay out evidence to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the guilty party is indeed guilty? And then the conviction takes place after the evidence is presented. The proof is, is, uh, is nailed down, if you will. And then the law convicts the guilty party of his actions. That's the conviction this is talking about. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the, the advocate, the comforter, the advocate will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. What it's saying is very simply this. It's saying the Holy Spirit coming to the earth is the proof of the sin of the world. It's the proof of the righteousness of Jesus. And it's the proof that since the world hated Jesus because of sin, since the world rejected Jesus and killed him, even though he's righteous, he's going to the Father just like he said numerous times, 
And as a result, he sends back the comforter. There's nothing left for the world except one thing, and that's the third one on the list, judgment. Now, I dare say that most of us have never looked at it this way, but the reality is the fact that the Holy Spirit is here on the earth proves that the world hated Jesus. That's the sin of rejecting him that he's talking about. Hated Jesus. It proves that Jesus is righteous and did leave to the Father to go to the Father just like he said that he would and that there's nothing left for the world except judgment. That's why we should have a heart to reach people because they're sunk. And the Holy Ghost is the proof of that. Now, he explains why. In verse 9, he says, of sin, because they believe not on me. So the sin he's talking about is the rejection of Jesus. The Holy Ghost is the proof that they rejected Jesus. Why? Because if Jesus had not left to go to the Father, the Holy Ghost couldn't have come. The fact that the Holy Ghost came proves that Jesus left to go to the Father because the world killed him. Second, verse 10, of righteousness. He'll convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus couldn't go to the Father unless he was the righteous one. The Holy Ghost is the proof of that. Because Jesus said himself, Holy Ghost can't come unless I go to the Father and send him to you. Finally, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. That's why the world hates Christianity. The world doesn't hate religion. The world accepts a lot of forms of religion, but boy, it hates Christianity. Now, it'll accept Christianity if it conforms to religion. But if it stands up for Jesus and the truth of the word and the power of the Holy Ghost, ooh, better look out there. Therefore, because the world hated Jesus and crucified him, because Jesus was righteous and the Holy Ghost came to the earth as proof of that, there's nothing left for the world except judgment because God judged the prince of this world. God executed judgment upon Satan. And the world follows because he is the God of this world. You see what he's saying? You ever thought of it like that? You ever thought that the the presence of the Holy Ghost proves the righteousness of Jesus? You ever thought of the fact that the Holy Ghost dwells in you through salvation and or the baptism being filled with the Holy Spirit is proof of the righteousness of God that is yours? Every time the devil tells you you're not worthy, all you need to do is speak in tongues. It's the proof that you are. Well, okay, thanks for coming. Now he says, verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come? Now, remember I said something about going back to verse 7 a little bit ago? There's a, there's a, um, there's an article in the Greek that doesn't translate into English. And the article is the. Here where it says in verse 13, uh, verse 12, Jesus said, there's a lot of things I have to tell you. There's a lot of things like this that's important for you to know, but you can't handle it now. I think the biggest part of that is because they're unsaved. So, but Jesus is going to be leaving. He's not going to be there with them. If they can't handle it now, what's going to happen? They need to know things. How are they going to find these things out? I'll send the comforter. That's what Jesus is saying. And notice what he says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, King James in verse 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is the spirit of the truth. Now, in order to understand this, we're going to have to back up to verse 7, like I said before. Notice in verse 7 in the King James, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. That's a bad translation. 
Because literally what it says is this. Nevertheless, I, the truth, say these things to you. Jesus calls himself the truth. I, the truth, say these things to you. It is profitable for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforter, the advocate, the paraclete cannot come unto you. Now, verse 13, how be it when he, the spirit of the truth, is come, he will guide you into the truth. All the truth. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us two things right off the bat. Jesus is identifying who the Holy Ghost is. He's saying the Holy Ghost, number one, is the spirit of Christ. Because Christ is the truth and the Holy Ghost is the spirit of the truth. Secondly, it's telling us that he's the spirit of the word. Because he tells us in chapter 17, the word of God is the truth. Sanctify them through your word. Thy word is the truth. Again, it doesn't come through in the King James, but in the original Greek, it's always the truth. See, God doesn't have a lot of truths. The world seems to have a multitude of truths. There's your truth, and there's my truth, and there's their truth, and there's other people's truth, and truth, 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 truth. Basically, what they've done is the world has defined truth as whatever I want to believe. Well, you've got a right to believe whatever you want to. You've got a right to be as wrong as you want to believe. But the fact is, there is one thing that is the truth. Now, if you know this, it makes understanding God and understanding the Bible a lot easier. Because if you understand the truth, simple basic truths, like what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy, but I am come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. That simple knowledge, that simple fact, that simple part of the truth will help explain a lot of things that the church world and, and religion as a whole says about God and, and show you that it's not right. See, most of the church world says that God makes people sick. It's impossible because it kills, steals, and destroys, and that's part of the devil's work. Yeah, but, but, but how do you explain the tragedy in the world? I, can't ha- I don't have an explanation for all the tragedy in the world. I don't have an explanation for everything that happens, but I know the truth. The truth is Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. That is the truth. Nothing overcomes that which is the truth. Do you understand what he's saying? When you've got the basics of the truth down, the rest of it falls in place, or most of the rest of it falls in place. Some of it, you're left scratching your head saying, well, I guess we'll have to ask God when we get there. But nothing overcomes the truth. Now, notice all those Christians that are, that are confused about who God is and what he does. They reject the truth. They reject the foundation. They reject the absolutes that everything else is built on. The structure that everything about the knowledge of God is built upon. If you reject that structure about who the God, who God is, the basics of who God is, you're going to be hopelessly confused as most Christians are. And what happens then is people start explaining away the scriptures. Well, I know the Bible says we can have whatever we ask for in the name of Jesus, but you know, it doesn't work like that. Really? See what I mean? So he says, how be it when he, the spirit of the truth has come, he will guide you into all the truth. Notice the progression here. Number one, he'll guide you into all of the truth. That has to mean the word then, doesn't it? Secondly, it says, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. <coughs> Some people think that means the Holy Ghost won't talk about himself. That can't be right. Because 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 is all about the Holy Ghost telling us how he works in, in, in the body of Christ. He tells us that through the Apostle Paul, but he's telling us about himself. Romans, uh, or 1 Corinthians 12, 1 uh, 
Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant, King James says. Literally, it means in the original Greek, it means now concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, I would not have you ignorant. Well, where does Paul get the information about that he's going to share with them so that they're not ignorant about spiritual things, things pertaining to the Holy Ghost? He got it from the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost had to speak of himself to show how he operates. So that can't be what he means. What does he mean then? He means the same thing as Jesus said when he always said, I don't say these things of myself. What I hear the Father say, that's what I'm telling you. When he says he shall not speak of himself, he means he shall not speak independently. Well, if he's not going to speak independently, who's he speaking for? For whatsoever things he hears, that shall he speak. Where's he going to hear it? He's hearing heavenly things. He's now going to hear things from the Father and hear things from Jesus and tell us those things. That's what he's going to speak. The third thing it says is, and he will show you things to come. Three things. He'll guide you into all of the truth. He won't speak independently of of the Father or the Son. And he'll show you things to come. For what purpose? Here's the overall purpose in chapter, in verse 14. He shall glorify me. That means guiding you into the truth will bring glory to Jesus. That means speaking what he hears of the Father will bring glory to Jesus. That means showing you things to come. All will glorify Jesus. And folks, if not, if what you think you've heard from the Holy Ghost doesn't glorify Jesus, it ain't the Holy Ghost. Because everything the Holy Ghost does glorifies Him. Meaning it won't glorify you. Meaning there's nothing that the Holy Ghost will reveal or say or lead you into that will glorify you instead of Jesus. He won't lift you up, but He will lift Jesus up. Now if you hang on to Jesus as the Holy Ghost lifts lifts Him up, you go up too. You're exalted at the same time, but not at the expense of Jesus. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Whoa, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you got? Now, these are not questions the disciples are asking. These are questions we ought to be asking. Again, this is the part that Paul does, that uh, John doesn't tell us about, because the disciples didn't get it. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe because they were unsaved, they weren't able to. But it seems to me that somebody in the group should have been sharp enough after three years of walking with Jesus to say, stop just a minute, Jesus, please slow down. You never do anything that's for just that's not for our good. Tell us how this works for our benefit. Why isn't somebody asking that question? Why isn't somebody saying you keep talking about going to the father? What do you mean by going to the father? What do you mean? Now, they come close to this with with something Jesus says in verse 16. They come real close because Jesus says something that just blows their minds and so they start arguing among themselves or questioning among themselves. But again, it says all things that the Father, or I'm sorry, he shall all receive of mine, verse 14, he shall show it unto you. Notice what Jesus says. Notice the connection between Jesus and the Father. He says all things that the Father hath are mine. Jesus won't even talk about his own glory except being connected with the Father. I think that's a good pattern for us to follow. Whatever we have is what Jesus has provided for us. But it's not ours. It's His. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore I said that He'll take of mine and shall show it unto you. Verse 16. A little while and you shall not see me. And again a little while and you shall see me because I go unto the Father. That's going to dominate everything about the, the, about the, the, uh, um, the mo- most of the rest of the chapter. 
because this is something that just they cannot accept. A little while you'll see me, and after that a little, a little while and you won't see me, and after that a little while and you'll see me again. What? Why are they so hung up on this? Now, we understand what he means because we can look back. John looked back 60 years before and understood perfectly what he didn't understand the night that Jesus said this. What does Jesus mean? Well, within two to three hours, he's taken from them, and they don't see him again until his crucifixion. But then a little while after that, three days after that, he appears again to them, and it's a whole different ballgame. But they can't comprehend this. Because the only thing that they've got stuck in their mind is, he says he's going away. They're thinking he's going to leave us here and go to some far country, and for some reason we can't understand, we can't go with him. They're not thinking leave him in death. They're not thinking Jesus is going to leave them in death. They're thinking Jesus is going to walk out of the room. And that's why Peter says, wherever you go, I'll go with you. Jesus says, you can't go with me where I'm going. Well, they're thinking he's going to outside of Judea. They're thinking he's going back to Samaria or something like that. They're thinking he's going to hide out because things are tough. They're not thinking heaven because the Jews never think heaven. You ever witness to a Jew and talk about heaven? You're wasting your time. Because heaven is not part of the Jewish theology. So he says, yeah, a little while. And you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me because I go unto the Father. Now, notice the last phrase, because I go unto the Father. In other words, between the little while that you don't see me and the little while that you see me again, I'm going somewhere. And he's telling them very plainly, he's saying, I'm going to the Father. They think that means the next country. They're not thinking heaven. They're not thinking spiritual realm. They're thinking earth. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he says unto us, A little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me, and because I go, and because I go to the Father? What is, it, what is this about? Is he saying that he's leaving and going to come back after just a short time? But then what's he talking about going to the Father? Where does the Father live? Does he live in South Israel? Who's he calling the Father? This is their thought process, folks. This is why the Jews miss Jesus. Because when he talked about the father, they're thinking, Father Abraham, he's dead. Can't go to him. Father God, you got to be kidding. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he says. In other words, we don't understand what he's talking about. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them... Think about this, folks. These guys have walked with him for three years, and they're afraid to ask him what he means. Why? He spent three good-sized chapters so far talking about this, uh, t- uh, talking about the things to come, and they're afraid to ask him. And Jesus knew they were. He knew he wasn't getting through. He knew they didn't understand. He knew that he's wasting his breath at that moment. And the only thing that's going to salvage any of this is the Holy Spirit bringing it to their remembrance later on. Otherwise, he's wasting time. So he knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said, 
Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said, a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me? You know what's amazing about this? What's ironic about this? Where do they think they're going to get the answers asking each other? There's not a very deep pool of knowledge going on here. And so instead of asking Jesus, they're asking each other, what does he mean? What does he mean? What does he mean? Do you know what he means? Do you know what he means? I don't know what he means. What's he talking about? So Jesus answers, Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the time, the little while, the first little while where you can't see me again. In other words, when I'm crucified and I die and I go away, you are going to weep and wail and lament. The first little while is not going to be a pleasant time for you. That you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Why? Because the world thinks they are victorious. They think we killed this imposter. He's doing miracles and we don't understand why, but he can't be the Messiah because of the things that he said about going away. He won't set up his earthly kingdom here, so he can't be the Messiah. We're doing God a favor getting rid of this imposter so the world will rejoice and you shall be sorrowful talking about his death but your sorrow shall be turned into joy you know what's uh, what's interesting about this as a matter of fact uh, hold your finger here we'll come back to this turn back with me a little bit to uh, to luke chapter 24 there's two things i want you to see here in luke's gospel I'm going to start reading verse 13, Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them, talking about two of the disciples, two of the apostles, went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And as they talked together of all these things which had happened, talking about Jesus' crucifixion, and uh, uh, at this point he'd been raised from the dead, and Mary had, had given them the news. Some of these guys didn't even hang around. They left town. That seems amazing to us because we know the end of the story. We're thinking, why aren't they jumping up and down said, saying, what Jesus told us is true, what Jesus has told us is true. Well, you're going to see the thought process here. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, <clears throat> Jesus himself drew near and went unto them, or went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he, Jesus, said unto them, what manner of communications are these? that you have one to another as you walk and are sad. Resurrection didn't mean anything to the disciples because they didn't get what Jesus had been telling them clearly. And the Bible tells us that at one point after the mountain, uh, the, the mountain of transfiguration, transfiguration experience, it says Jesus began to plainly teach them, clearly teach them, openly teach them. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. Three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He told them that without parables. He told them that without hiding anything. He came out right out with it, and he said, this is how it's going to be. Did they not get that part? Did they not hear what he said? Well, yeah, they heard it, but it was too much for them to accept. So they're walking around. Now they're sad on the road to, Dema on the road to Emmaus. Excuse me. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast thou not known the things which are come to pass in these there in these days and jesus said unto them what things <laughs> jesus is messing with them what thing what are you talking about 
And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how that the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be uh, condemned to death and have crucified him. Notice verse 21. Please, please, please notice verse 21. Here's what two of the disciples are saying. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Do you realize what they're saying? They're walking around on the road to Emmaus saying, can you believe what's happened? Jesus shows up and says, what are you guys talking about? Why are you so sad? They said, well, it's because all the things been going on in Jerusalem. Jesus says, what things? So they said, what haven't you heard about Jesus? He did miracles. He did signs and wonders and they crucified him. They condemned him to die. He didn't deserve it, but they crucified him and killed him. But we thought that he was the Messiah. Do you see? That's why at the Last Supper, they are so torn up when Jesus says, I'm going away. Now, let's, let's give them a break. Put yourself in their position. <clears throat> if you've been taught that the Messiah is coming to the earth to set up an earthly kingdom here, and he's going to be a man of God, not the Son of God wasn't really the issue. Son of God really isn't the issue in Judaism. But he's going to be a man that's used of God. He's going to be a man that redeems Israel. He's going to be a man that restores the kingdom to Israel. No more Romans. No more being destroyed and, de- and defeated by other kings and other uh, um, kingdoms and, and that kind of stuff. It's going to be a, a, a wonderful kingdom. We've even got Old Testament scriptures that talk about lions and lambs laying down together. So we're not talking about business as usual. We're talking about a whole new system, whole new setup. But they're thinking it's all right here. Then they kill your Messiah. And they're thinking, but we thought he was the one. Folks, the crucifixion for the disciples, for the apostles, the crucifixion was the point of death for everything they thought they had committed themselves to for the last three years. We look at it as a part of the process. We look at it as, at it as the important part of the sacrifice where Jesus gives himself up so that we can live forever. Jews don't look at it like that. Didn't then, don't now. The Jews think that the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of God here on the earth means they control the money. Yeah, we've got our land, we've got our territory, but everybody's trying to take that from us. But God's given us something special in the financial realm. They've massaged their theology so that we control the world through money. It's not about spiritual things. Toughest thing in the world is to talk to a Jewish person about spiritual things. My rabbi friend has since gone to be with the Lord. Talking to him about spiritual things was the toughest thing in the world. Because he's all about stuff here. There's no heaven. There's no kingdom to come. It's It's all about the Jews putting everybody else in their place. Now, you remember where we started? Before we came back to Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, verse 20, that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Notice what the Bible tells us after they find Jesus raised from the dead in Luke chapter 24 and verse 52. And it said, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The thing that happened to them, the change that took place in them was the joy of their realization that Jesus is not dead. We saw him die. We don't understand all this, but he's alive. John chapter 20, it says the disciples, when they saw Jesus and saw him 
uh, reached forth his hands and his side and show him all the things that uh, had happened to him, showed him, showed him that it was really him. He said, then were the disciples glad. Jesus makes mention of the one thing that will change place. He said, your sorrow for seeing me crucified will turn to joy. Now notice the, the example that he uses here. Verse 21, he said, a woman when she is in travail has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the for joy that a man is born into the world. Isn't it interesting that he uses the the, uh, the birthing experience to explain what's going to happen to them that we know of as the new birth? He said, "Here's how your sorrow is going to be turned into joy." Verse twenty-two. And now you there now and you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man takes from you. And in that day, now what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of their salvation. He's talking about the day following his resurrection. He's talking about the new covenant period of time, the church age that we live in. And he says, in that day, when your heart is turned from sorrow to joy because you find out that I am alive, when you're born again, and in that day you shall ask me nothing, literally no more questions. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. What's he doing? Now he's making the transition. He's telling them. And and remember, it all goes back to the little while and you won't see me again. And after a little while, you will see me again. He's making the transition. In that day when you see me again, everything will change. Here's the ushering in of the spiritual kingdom. And in that day, in that spiritual kingdom, you won't have to ask me anything. You can ask the Father in my name. And whatever question you might want to ask me, you can ask him. And because you're asking in my name, he'll give you the answer just like I always did. Up till now, you haven't asked anything of the Father in my name. But ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. Notice why God wants you to get your prayers answered. So that your joy is full. Do you realize answered prayer is a proof that Jesus is alive? Because the only way you can get your prayer answered is to ask in the name of Jesus. And whatever power of God, whatever work of the Holy Ghost is necessary for you to get the answers to your prayers is the work of the Holy Spirit glorifying Jesus to prove that he's alive. It's all about relationship, folks. Verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. The word Proverbs is really a, uh, probably not the best translation. Uh, it could be parables. Uh, this word is translated the same thing in, uh, in different places. But the best translation, in my opinion, would be dark sayings. Because he's not talking about Proverbs or parables as we understand them that explain certain things or reveal certain things. He's saying, I've told you certain things in dark sayings so that you wouldn't understand clearly. In other words, I haven't been right out front with all of these things because you couldn't handle it. But the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs or dark sayings, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. Now, what day is that? What time is he talking about? He's talking about after the resurrection. He's talking about in the day of the new birth. He's talking about this as being a part of the believer's privileges and rights in Christ, where we will plainly See and know the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name. I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. Verse 27, here's the final transition to the Father. 
putting them in relationship with the Father. For the Father himself loves you. Now, Jesus has said throughout John's gospel, the Father loveth me. I do the Father the Father's will and he loves me. Over and over again, he's talking about how God loves him. Now he says the Father loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. And again, I leave the world and go into the Father. That's as plainly as he can tell him about where he's going and what what's this is all about. And the result, verse 29, his disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb or dark saying. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. This sounds like progress. <coughs> now they're saying, okay, you've told us. We understand now. We got it. You're going to be leaving the world because you're going to the Father. You're setting it up so that we can have a place with the Father. We know, we believe, we're with you now. And Jesus, first thing Jesus does is challenge them. He says in verse 30, or 31, I'm sorry. Jesus answered them and said, do you now believe? Now, there's a couple of ways you can look at this. The word now is the important word in this verse. Because you can look at this where he has finally convinced them and now they believe. Or you can look at this from the knowledge of Jesus, from the perspective of Jesus, knowing that in a couple of hours, these all are, these people that say they now believe are going to scatter like, like roaches. They're going to run like crazy because Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be taken captive. He's going to be imprisoned, beaten, prepared for the cross, and then everybody runs away. John's the only one that we know is at the cross. We know that after the after Jesus is taken um, uh, captive in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that Peter and John go to Caiaphas' house, and they're standing on the outside. That's where Peter denies him. John's there to witness it. I'm sure that was a real blessing to Peter. But otherwise, none of the rest of them see him at all. So he's just a very, very, very short time within a couple of hours of, of losing sight of all of them. So he says, do you now believe? Knowing that they're not going to hold on to what they say they believe. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, verse 32, yea, is now come that you shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the father's with me. So the very ones that say, yeah, now we believe. Jesus said, really? You're going to scatter like bugs. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Now get this. <coughs> Here's how Jesus ends this discourse. Here's how Jesus ends this special section that only John tells us about. He says, I've told you these things, that in me you might have peace. How in the world would one of these guys, any of these guys, especially Peter, but how in the world would any of these guys have peace knowing that they ran away from Jesus, whom they said they loved and believed in. How would that not bug you for the rest of your life? Look, I know me. I'd be apologizing and asking God to forgive me for every day for the rest of my life. But notice what Jesus says. Remember where we started? This says, uh, let me find the, the reference. The, this discourse starts... With, uh, uh, let 
chapter 13. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own. Notice this phrase. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Notice that phrase. He loved them unto the end. Notice the last thing Jesus tells them as a part of this, this special section. He says, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In other words, I'm not condemning you for the things I know you're going to do. I'll get on to you after I come back for not believing in me, but I'm speaking these things to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. This word tribulation means pressure, anguish, persecution, burden, or trouble. He's just talking about general stuff. He's not talking about the persecutions of Jews against them now. He's just talking about in this world you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What's he saying? He's telling them everything about going to the cross, everything about making a place with the Father, everything about introducing them to the Father so that the Father can love them and answer their their questions and answer their prayers. Everything about everything concerning the work of the Holy Spirit toward the world and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church is so that you can overcome in me. And at that point, Jesus turns his attention to heaven and he begins to pray. That's his closing statement to his disciples. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now put yourself back in John's place. John's the only one that's willing to hang around. The reason for that is probably because of his age. He's a teenager. Nobody took him serious. He was was known to have been with Jesus, but, I mean, he's just a youngster. He's not a troublemaker like, like Peter. He's not a troublemaker like Simon the Zealot. He's not somebody that's going to stir up any trouble. Look at John. He's hanging around with Jesus' mother. He's comforting her. The Jews didn't pay any attention to John, didn't give him a second thought because of his age, because of who he was, because he was a, he was a mama's boy for Jesus' mother. Think about how John has had the opportunity to think back on this for 60 years. What would this special section mean to John after he has now reached close to 100 years of age, Walking with the Lord since the time he was a teenager, probably 15, 16 years old, something like that. Maybe 85 years of his life. Born again, or it wouldn't be 85, I guess it'd be around 82 or so. Born again. Growing in the knowledge of God. With the Holy Ghost doing all the things in him and through him that Jesus said that he would. Finally growing and developing in the love of God to such a degree that when the Jews do consider him to be a threat, they cannot kill the guy. They try to boil him in oil and he doesn't die. They try to stone him and he doesn't die. So finally they just ship him out of town. Send him to an island in exile. And what does he do there? He writes the gospel that bears his name. He writes three letters to the church that we have record of. And he tells us about the end time. How precious do you think this statement is to John? 
Folks, that, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, but in my opinion, at least in my experience, this is what makes the Gospel of John so precious. Because John is remembering back to each one of these things because the Holy Ghost has brought him to his remembrance. The Holy Ghost has kept him reminded of these things. And the last thing that he says about Jesus in his discourse is, in the world you're going to have trouble. I'm telling you these things so you can have peace in me. In the world you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. No way could he have known what that meant that night. No way could any of them know. But he knows now, doesn't he? He knows as he writes it. If you and I had been there, it would be nice for us to think, I'd like to think that I would have been a little bit more spiritually mature and not been worried about Jesus going away, but trying to dig a little deeper to find out what's behind all this. But I'm kidding myself. Unsaved people don't think that way. But we've got the same advantage that John does to be able to look back to the true meaning of these things. Remember why Jesus said he was going to the Father? To prepare a place for you. What is that place that he prepared for you? The place of overcoming the world. And the Holy Ghost is the proof that that's been accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the precious Holy Spirit that's been given to us because of the finished work of Jesus, the finished work of redemption. Father, we thank you that though we are in this world, we are not of this world. Our kingdom is not earthly. We're here on a mission. We're here with a purpose. And that purpose is to do the works of Jesus and to influence the world around us to know our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Thank you, Father, that because the Holy Spirit has come, this is the confidence that we have in you. That if we ask anything according to your will, meaning according to your word, we know you hear us. And if we know you hear us, then we know that we have the petitions that we've desired of you. Thank you, Father, for the great Holy Spirit that indwells us because Jesus the righteous is seated at your right hand. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here.